Welcome to Illumination by Modern Campus, the leading podcast focused on transformation and change in the higher education space. On today's episode, we speak with Jim Gathard, who is Director of Continuing Education at the University of Cambridge. Jim and podcast host Amr Alawalia discuss Cambridge's rich history of 150 years in the field of continuing education, emphasizing the importance of understanding its roots in order to foster ongoing community engagement. Jim Gazzard, uh, welcome to the Illumination Podcast. It's great to be chatting with you. Thank you very much. So we're recording at the UL Scutria Conference uh, here at your home institution, Mattingly Hall at Cambridge University. Uh, thank you for hosting this conference, by the way. I really That's do appreciate pleasure. it. Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education is celebrating its 150th anniversary. This is obviously part of part of that celebration process. But what are some of the things you and the team are doing to celebrate this, this, this milestone? There's been a lot of things um, this year. Um, We've been really reflecting on um, the purpose and the mission and what's been consistent throughout. So in February, we had an all-staff gathering. We called it our syndication day. So this was when our founders actually approached in in February of 1873, um, the university uh, and asked for permission to to form this institute. So we were thinking about um, why they did that. And it was about um, universal suffrage and providing education to women and the working classes. It was about the second industrial revolution and actually new factories and industries, but actually needing more skills to who was going to be the bookkeeper, who was going to be the manager. So we were thinking about those origins. But we're also um, going to have a dinner in September at Trinity College, Cambridge. So our founders were really radical Victorian progressive people, but they were also fellows of, of Trinity College. Um, so we, we want to spend some time there celebrating them um, and, and, and recognising everything they did. In between all of that, we've had a student dinner in June, uh, which is fantastic to see students and often learning about a history that they didn't know anything about. They joined us as um, because it was Cambridge and they were interested in their programme, but knowing all of the history behind all of that. So but it's as much looking forward as it is looking back. So that that's one of the key messages from the 150th. Absolutely. And I uh, staying on the look <laughs> for just a moment. What, you know, obviously I think anytime anyone from North America is in the UK or, or Western Europe, the the idea of the scale of history starts to really hit homes. You're talking about a 150 year celebration for the Institute of Continuing Education. We recently in Canada celebrated our 150th year of confederation mm-hmm. as, as an independent yeah. country. Um, and my, my own undergraduate institution, Queen's University recently celebrated its 175th anniversary mm-hmm. as an, uh, as a chartered university. So it, it's it's incredible to think 150 years ago, a continuing education unit was, was founded yeah. Um, and the roots, though, are, are very similar to what we tend to see in North America around the the founding of continuing education and the founding of these kinds of departments, because what what those came out of was um, the Merrill Act around land grant and the, the creation of, of extension as how do we get the research of the institution into the hands of people who can who can put it to practical use, you know, uh, getting away from the idea of the university as a place for lawyers and doctors yeah. to get their letters. It's more now a place where, where we really serve the community. You mentioned that a little bit in in, mm-hmm. in your introduction. I'm, I'm just curious to learn a little bit more. I mean, how, as as you've researched the history of, of, the, of the institution, as you've researched the history of continuing education, how did those roots 
um, create the the culture and the structure mm. that you guys are are still working with today. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you're right. It, this started off as a hyper local um, type of educational requirement. There would be, um, you know, civic leaders from Exeter in the southwest of England write to Cambridge and say, um, we want to teach citizens about history. We want to teach them about bookkeeping. And um, a group of Cambridge academics would essentially be dispatched. And But what I like about it was, I suppose we call it being market-led now or mm-hmm. being community-led. The curricula were designed by people with academics. It was co-created, I guess, as we call it now. And these communities of learning built, you know, yesterday I talked about the University of Exeter, the University of Sheffield, the University of Nottingham. These were groups of citizens working with Cambridge academics that form these new universities, hmm. but as well, you know, equally as valued local history groups in the east of England talking about, you know, there might be an interest in a church or there might be interested in a historic figure from that area. Can we use an evidence base to think about that? <laughs> and, you know, that that's so exciting on many levels. I mean, that that's good evidence-based curriculum design, but really what you're teaching is critical thinking and what you're doing is you're building communities because people who wouldn't normally study together work together are there in the same place at the same time and they're searching for understanding and I think to transpose that to today you know I worry about these echo chambers in the newspapers we read people who look like us sound like us share our political beliefs talking to one another in this closed room. Mm-hmm. The whole point of continuing education to me has been the opposite of that, agreeing to disagree in a civilised way, mm-hmm. agreeing to disagree based on evidence, not shrieking at each other and shouting at each other. So I think a lot of that we carry forward and we carry forward in a, on an open university basis. Selective universities like Cambridge and many others are about whether you were in the right place at the right time when you were 18 or 19 with the right high school uh, marks, you've been well, your family life had been stable. But what happens if you didn't have that? What Mm. if you were ready at 25, 35, 65, 85? Uh, What if you want to change? And so I I think this is about unlearning, relearning. I think it's about career change. And so those are the kind of things that actually are consistent. um, And it's been about opportunity but however that student defines opportunity it's not necessarily about becoming a lawyer or a doctor although many of our students move into professions and change career but it's it's as much about helping your children or grandchildren with their homework and being and when we've seen that through COVID is it is is that real desire parents grandparents guardians seeing their children learn at home and then thinking actually my own educational experience has weren't that great how do I get re-engaged so that sweep of history I think has has been quite consistent well it's fascinating too because you know to a certain extent when you think about um institutions like Cambridge and you know you and I both know Nancy Coleman well and then brands like Harvard it, it these aren't necessarily brands that would suggest a level of openness or a level of, of community engagement they they have they carry a weight to them yeah but the work that each of your divisions are doing is is very much trying to combat that so i'm curious you know how do you actually go about ca- combating this 
maybe misperception in the community, especially, but but across the country and, and now globally yeah. as, as universities start to expand their reach around what the brand of Cambridge actually means when it comes yeah. to continuing education, online education and, and open enrollment. I mean, what I love about the brand of Cambridge is its plurality. It can mean on one level, um, Nobel laureate in how we do DNA sequencing, but it also means it's this open university. I, I think there is a tension because that the, the brand is seen as selective. The brand mm. is seen as research led. So often we have to do a lot of outreach and a lot of explanation as to who we are. And, and we do see a lot of students with imposter syndrome, but imposter syndrome is our problem. It's my problem in terms of how we make Cambridge more accessible. And we have to get the messaging clearer. Um, so, so, you know, we, we, we make sure that students feel that there's this welcomeness. We're here as a, as a peer group. So I think Cambridge can be projected in, in so many different ways. Um, but, but yeah, the brand is powerful. It's a convening brand. Um, but we also have to disarm and discharge the brand as as one and making sure that um, students, prospective students know that, that this was the world's first open university and people from all walks of life, all backgrounds have studied here successfully. And the most powerful thing of all is they then go on to be our advocates and our champions. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing, you know, you'll be sat at a meeting in London or New York or in Australia and somebody will stand up, you know, sometimes Cambridge will be criticised for, you know, elite and elitism. And somebody will stand up and say, well, actually, I studied at Cambridge. I didn't have a qualification to my name, but I studied at the Institute of uh, Institute of Continuing Education um, uh, and it transformed my life or it transformed the life of my family. Mm -hmm. and, and they can tell the story a thousand times better than I can. Well, that's, you know, it's such an important part of, of what continuing education does. It really does have such an impact on socioeconomic mobility, the capacity to, to break cycles of poverty. All these things are, are core to the mission. But turning our lens a little bit to the, I guess, the consumer engagement part of what we do in, the, in this particular space. Um, no, I, I mean, I, I strongly believe that no part of the higher education ecosystem at this point is free from serving consumers, but in continuing education, the barriers to entry and exit are extremely mm -hmm. low. The competitive landscape is fierce. And, and as we just mentioned, global. How do you ensure that a, the brand of Cambridge is replicated or mirrored or or felt in every phase of, of a learner's engagement with the institution? And, and I guess to a certain extent, where do you have to make trade-offs when it comes to delivering that that on those expectations? Well, you're right. I mean, we want to make this open. Uh, we want to make it as affordable as possible. Um, you know, we we have um, what we think is the most uh, generous bursary um, offer in, in the whole of the sector. So we, we can lower some of those barriers. But as you know, a, a lot of adults, um, the barrier isn't necessarily um, money it's time but it also it's the so what what am I going to be able to do differently mm -hmm. I could sit in this history class or this molecular biology class or this architecture class but what difference is it going to make so I think we spent a lot of time really talking about um what is the Cambridge difference and and we want our teaching to be yes evidence-led and we have to be thinking about learning outcomes and we're highly regulated now in, in the UK and quite rightly so you know we must deliver value for money but we talk about having conversations here that you would never have anywhere else. 
an environment where we can explore evidence, uh, where we can, um, you know, go off piece a little bit from mm-hmm. the curriculum and, and really ask everybody in the room, as we sit around in a circle, we try not to sit in rows, why do you hear what do you want to get from this? And for some students, it's really high stakes learning. It might be about getting there, getting a job, getting a promotion, changing career. Um, for others, it might be, you know, they've had their career in medicine or engineering mm. or whatever it may be. And, and, and this is about a personal passion. Um, but it's bringing the resources of Cambridge to bear, um, bringing diverse academic uh, voices bringing real challenge you know uh, one of the 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 great attractions to me of cambridge teaching is, is is this contradictory notion we we're all asked to take stances that we might not naturally right. um, take and 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 getting outside of your own belief system and and perhaps understanding the opportunities the barriers how it feels to to, to represent a different voice so I think that that gives it the Cambridgeness. But what we have to be really careful about now is actually that consumer experience. Going back to the question, um, is is it is making sure that we make this easy? You know, we want to. Yes, we have to collect data on prospective students, but if we ask them to fill out their information six times, right. you know, no other company in the world would do that. So we're working on that making sure that we respond in, in the same business day or the next business day, because we know students will en- yeah. enroll um, everywhere. It makes such an impact so, on the buying process. Yeah, so. finding that balance between what is great. You know, I, I, I believe you in any Cambridge classroom, you will have an amazing intellectual academic experience, but that wraparound consumer experience we have to build into as well, and that's what we are doing. Well, it's, it's fascinating to think, I mean, how do you start to reflect that inside the classroom experience outside it. And I think yeah. this is where as an industry, we might've fallen short historically is, you know, the, the, fo- the orientation to, to be crass, the product yeah. um, really puts us in a mind that takes us away from that, that consumer mm-hmm. element. Now I am curious, and, and I, I, I want to take a step back from the institution a little bit mm-hmm. more focus on the space, obviously um, in 20. 2017 and then carried through the, the following few years, there's been a pretty radical political shift in, mm-hmm. in the structure of the UK. I'm, I'm curious how Brexit's impacted the the state of the higher education mm-hmm. space in, in Britain and, and how you're seeing that influence, especially in England, yeah. um, the the way that universities are having to, to, mm-hmm. to pivot. <clears throat> Uh, how long have we got? <laughs> uh, uh, and I'm, I'm going to try and, and provide you, as, as as a proud European, a balanced answer. So um, let's take some of the challenges first. Um, we have prided ourselves on having um, international classrooms, both in terms of faculty and students. And I think it has had a negative impact on the number of European Union um, students here. Mm-hmm. We don't have a differential fee for European uh, students in continuing education, but even so, I think the reputation of the United Kingdom um, has, has been damaged as an outward-facing, collaborative um, nation. Um, I think on very practical levels, you know, um, the, uh, how we um, 
uh, in an environment like this, uh, we need chefs, we we need receptionists, um, uh, and, and and it's been very difficult, I think, to actually create that that broader environment. Our European Union colleagues who've worked at the Institute of Continuing Education have brought professionalism, have brought different voices, and have made many of our international students feel at home. Mm-hmm. On the plus side, and I use this as a in a very caveated way, I think it's made the um, UK government really think about um, where it's at in terms of skills, how we build um, uh, new generations of technical vocational uh, professionals, um, how we build or rebuild a, a functioning economy. So the apprenticeship levy uh, that was introduced in 2017, we've been involved with that. We have courses around um, uh, policing around architecture. That's been very interesting. I think it's brought some more inclusive, diverse classrooms. The lifelong loan entitlement, which will be introduced, we're told in in 2025, um, I think has many positives in terms mm. of reopening student financing, which has been a barrier um, to everyone. Um, so, so I think um, Brexit has forced the government to. To be honest, this government and its predecessors going back to, to Blair um, and Brown have fixated on young people going to um, a campus-based university yes. on a full-time basis. That is an achievement. Um, 50% of young uh, people in the UK go now to university, and that should be celebrated. Absolutely. But the unintended consequences that had on more or less destroying adult education, continuing education in the UK, was very, very unfortunate indeed. So I'm hoping now um, with the levy, with lifelong loan, um, and more of a culture of we have to keep learning. You know, if we cannot bring skilled labour in from the European Union, which we had done for 30 years, it's been incredibly successful. We've got to think about it in different ways. So I'm proud that Cambridge is, is thinking about that, but I'm also proud that we're reaching out to the European Union and, and still saying, look, we are an international community. As I've mentioned, we don't differentiate on fees. Um, and, and what we want are curricula that are inclusive. This is not going back to a colonial British sense of you know 150 years ago, perhaps. This is about teaching international global skills, culture, um, how we all work. Um, together, and I think that's what continuing education will continue to be about. Well, it's it's a fascinating shift, you know. In uh, I'm obviously fortunate to have had a, an opportunity, or will have an opportunity to present at this conference. By the time this episode mm-hmm. goes live, it'll be in the past. Um, but it was an opportunity to to take a real look at, at the state of the labor market in the UK and, and uh, the state of the university space. And I think one of the things that that struck me most was how much alignment there is with the apprenticeship model in mm-hmm. universities, which in North America is not uh, a common space for universities to play in. Um, and and beyond that, when you look at the funding models, having the lifelong learning entitlement, which, you know, as you mentioned, expected to roll out in 2025 and from 2027 is expected to create access to stackable yeah. programming, to modular programming, to non-credit programming, which is something I think in, in North America, both in Canada and the United States, we've been clamoring for. Mm-hmm. Um, and then beyond that, to have... Uh, what's expected to be launched in returnership uh, programming for older adults to to be able to come back and and engage in apprenticeships meaningfully for second or third or fourth or fifth career opportunities, which, as you've mentioned, I mean, in in an environment where we're expected to live 100-year lives, we're expected to be working well into our 80s, 
it becomes incredibly important to find pathways to serve these audiences that that are historically underserved by the post-secondary institution. Mm -hmm. And as so, I mean, it might be an obvious question, but as you mentioned, the role of continuing education is going to be significant in, in helping universities adapt to this reality. How do you see that that role continuing to shift over the next, say, five to ten years? I think this 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 is the most important area. Um how we define, as you say, underserved. Um I think we look at it in its entirety. It's still the case that about 98% of global investment in education and training is people aged from zero to 25. But we might have another 75 years on the planet after. The concept of the 100-year life, I, I think, is interesting, challenging, exciting. In the UK, the, 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 the least um, productive areas of the economy will normally be people in uh, who are age 50 and older mm -hmm. um, because their skills uh, might be out of date. And yet they might now have, as you say, 20, 25 years in the workplace. So I think we have to engage that. And I I, I find it personally very interesting when, if, if you think of andragogy in the round, you welcome everyone to a classroom as a whole person. Yes. Their experience as a parent, a carer, a volunteer, um, you know, all of that is rich learning substrate. You can choose if you wish to look at this negatively or oh, all the baggage of life and everything that gets in the way. We refuse. Uh, I refuse to look at it like that. Let's bring the richness of that experience in, into the classroom. So, you know, Stanford's um, open loop model, it's mentioned the 100 year um, life, uh, lifetime model. So I think we have to have vehicles uh, across a lifespan um, and, and these can be, as mentioned before, they can be professional, they can be about um, changing careers, or they can just be about getting back into learning and getting confident. We know, we all know, when you look at barriers to learning, uh, and you can talk about all the disadvantages certain communities face, but one consistent challenge is self-efficacy, a lack yes. of confidence. A, lack of, you know, a high school teacher told me when I was 14 that, you know, I would amount to nothing. And I can tell you the number of, of students who walk across our um, award ceremonies with the Cambridge qualification, and they still talk about that. But they also talk about how they've been freed up by the fact that they can say, I have this now. So I think this is all about communities of learning. I know that's an overused term, but I really mean it, actually getting together with peers and talking about how this learning is going, what it means, the successes that you've had, the challenges, um, but 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 how we 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 grow with those populations. And, and again, the, the final thing I would say with this is the great secret about this all is that universities learn more from uh, these groups of people than they learn from us because they talk to us about the communities that they live in. Mm -hmm. They talk to us about the language we use. They talk to us about how our curricula might be more reflective of the lives that they're leading, their heritage, um, their families, communities, their workplaces. And we have to listen. So I, I think the whole point about lifelong learning, returnerships, apprenticeships, the lifelong loan entitlement is we actually get to learn together. And, and for me, my job is to bring the resources of Cambridge to bear on that um, and make it as open and accessible as possible. 
Absolutely. Well, just to give folks a sense of, of place for where Jim and I are speaking right now, because you might have heard the door open and <laughs> yes, close a few times. We're using the, the library at Mattingly Hall, which uh, Jim was telling me before we started, was the historic kitchens and the yeah. bread oven of, of the of the manor house in which we're situated. It, it really is a stunning space. Jim, as we close, uh, if someone finds themselves traveling to, to Cambridge, mm. where do they need to go to dinner? <laughs> Well, I, I'm bound to say Maddenly Hall. Because, uh, <laughs> we, as, as well as being the Institute of Continuing Education, um, you can book to stay here. Uh, we have an amazing brigade of chefs. Uh, we think a lot about food that's grown um, in the region. Uh, we think a lot about um, how we reflect um, the seasons. But also we think a lot about the learning that's going on. And if we're um, teaching classical Greek or if we're teaching AI, um, the menus might reflect that um, a, a little bit just oh, to see fun. if we um, they, they could stand out. So um, but you can join us here at, uh, at Maddingley Hall for a cup of coffee. You can join us here for a five course banquet. There's going to be a conference dinner this evening. Uh, so hopefully all of the delegates will see. Um, one of my favourite times here in 2019, we hosted the Deans of Continuing Education meeting um, here. And it was just, uh, uh, you know, fantastic because one of the things in, in my view um is continuing education is fueled by um good food uh, we often say we're a cake based organization you know, we <laughs> eat a lot of cake Not good for the blood sugar i'm afraid to report but um the point i'm trying to make is that people learn outside of the classroom by saying hey you know did you understand what that tutor said no me neither you know what what the heck was that all about so um yeah um yeah food is a big part of cambridge well and i'll, I'll tell you a pers personal review it's it's been exceptional jim thank you so much for joining me and, and for taking the time out and and for hosting the conference we really do appreciate it it's our pleasure thank you very much this podcast is made possible by a partnership between modern campus and the evolution the Modern Campus Engagement Platform powers solutions for non-traditional student management, web content management, catalog and curriculum management, student engagement and development, conversational text messaging, career pathways, and campus maps and virtual tours. The result? Innovative institutions can create learner-to-earner life cycle that engages modern learners for life, while providing modern administrators with the tools needed to streamline workflows and drive high efficiency. To learn more and to find out how to modernize your campus, visit moderncampus.com. That's moderncampus.com.